Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Real Estate Matters. For over nine years, the voice of real estate in Flagler, Flagler County in Palm Coast, Florida. I'm Toby Tobin. I'm a Florida licensed commercial realtor with Grand Living Commercial Realty. This show is brought to you every week by the Flagler County Home Builders Association, Klein Construction, American Village. It's a 55-plus gated community where I live, and Hammock Community Church. And I should note that Hammock Community Church doesn't actually pay to support the show, but they they support me. That's my church, and I like to give them a shout-out because uh, it's kind of a neat little church over in the Hammock church the way it used to be. It's a non-denominational. We'd love to have you come in some Sunday. Services at 9 and 11. You're really racking up the sponsors these days. Too. Yeah. Well, we're getting a lot of listeners, too. Yeah. So this is uh, and that voice, by the way, from far and far away was Walker Douglas. Hello. He's uh, in the studio today. He's not off on one of his numerous vacations. <laughs> So, good to see you back in studio, Walker. Good to be back. Good to be seen. We're recording this on Thursday, so we have uh, our all of our statistics are as of Thursday, which is, I think, the 4th, 4th or 5th. Anyway, we're pretty much done with September, so I think there will still be a couple uh, sales reported belatedly, but... We've pretty much got a handle on September. It's a good month overall. There were 255 homes sold through Flagler County MLS, single-family homes sold. And that compares to only 195 last September. Wow. So for the first time in a while, we actually had year-over-year sales gains. The median price down a little from a year ago. It's at three fifty-five versus three seventy point nine a year ago. Total sales, interesting number of one hundred and six point eight million this year versus eighty-five point two million a year ago. Days on market holding at thirty-six. So if if you look at homes listed, eight hundred ninety-six. Homes pending, 326. Those are reasonable numbers for a normal market. Yeah. But 36 days on market is still relatively low. So we've got lower median price versus last year and more yes. sales? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Well, a lot more homes sold. I mean, there were 60 more homes sold this year versus last year. And uh, nearly 100 of those 255 were new construction. So the interest rates effectively doubling hasn't totally killed the market locally. No, no. And I I don't expect it that it will either. In fact, I've got some – I like to do comparisons because if you look at like this month versus last month, that's just a – we have – Erratic behavior in our market. It goes up, it goes down ten, fifteen thousand dollars from month to month. And it's it's kind of chatters up and down. You look at the trend lines or you go back and look at some time like uh, a few weeks ago, remember we went back to nine years ago 
than compared this year to back then, and it's pretty startling. So uh, for today's show, I went back to before the pandemic. Before the mostly peaceful protests? Right, yeah, before the mostly peaceful uh, firebombing. <laughs> but the, uh, the the comparison is, is interesting. The uh, home sold, again, was 255 in uh, the same month, 2019, which is before the pandemic, which was, we considered that a robust market yeah, at the time. I remember we were, we were pretty excited. But 255 versus 177. So the number of homes sold <clears throat> from pre-pandemic times is up 44%. Median price of 355 compares to 253,000. In 2019, that's a 40.3% increase. So that that means that <clears throat> the typical home gained over $100,000 in equity wow. over that period of time. Which is about, what, almost <clears throat> a third, maybe a little more than a third of the home value at the time? Mm-hmm. Well, it's 40%. So, about 40%. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, 40.3%. Uh, total sales were this... Recently, 106.8 million. Pre-pandemic, 53.4 million. That's up exactly 200 percent. Wow, that's the total sales volume. Of course, you know that that's what the real estate community gets paid on. Is, transactions, is transactions. Well, the, the total sales volume. You could have you could double the transactions and half the price, yeah. and still have the same sales volume. You'd be doing a lot more legwork. Yeah. For sure. Uh, Single-family residential permits uh, last month, 183, pre-pandemic, 99. That's up 84.8%. And people will get all upset about, oh, we're overbuilding, we're over, over growing too fast. Uh, there were months back uh, 20 years ago when we had over 400 single-family permits in a given month. What was the sentiment locally like um, during that period of growth? Do you remember? Well, people were upset because they couldn't drive down their street. <laughs> About every third house, someone was unloading a, a, a pile of trusses or something. Sure. And, so that, and so that would be ITT development for a lot development for the most part is it would that have been scattered lot growth or would that have been subdivision uh it would have been subdivisions as well because uh, i'm i moved in 2000 into grand haven and when i moved in <clears throat> grand haven had about 250 homes of course now they're close to their 1901 home full build out but palm coast plantation had just started but probably the the biggest development was uh, Grand Haven. Hammock Dunes was was building, and of course that I mean, of course, the internet was still around, but it was still early, and not everybody had an anonymous account on the internet um, mm-hmm. to make waves, as it were. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, people complained a little bit, mostly about. The fact that uh, road widening, installing traffic lights, that that kind of infrastructure work wasn't keeping up with the growth and uh, 
course, every time you had a traffic light, that's another potential traffic jam. Yeah, you know, another conflict point, as they say in the mm-hmm. traffic engineer <clears throat> business, which is another potential point for an accident. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, duplex permits last month were 12 versus 7 pre-pandemic. That's up 71.4%. But that's a probably statistically insignificant number. It's pretty small. So what what does that make you think of? I mean, what, you know, when you hear numbers, comparison numbers like that. It makes me think, Toby, that two th- we got hit harder than any community in the country, almost definitely by 2000, by the Great Recession. And it took us, what, 10 or 12 years to mm-hmm. start. Yeah, we lost to at get least back where we we lost were. 10 years at least in the market. It makes me think that we're sort of getting back to where we would have been had we not gotten hit by the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you draw a trend line from, say, 2003 up until now, it'd be a pretty decent trend line. But, of course, along the way we lost uh, almost 60% of our values. I mean, the median home price dropped 60%. When we crashed, we we went up faster. We went up higher. We crashed sooner. We we were the canary in the coal mine. We just didn't know it. Real estate values are anything but steady. We cra- We we shot up before '08, and then we crashed hard, mm-hmm. and then and we shot up during the lockdowns. But it took us longer to get back to the pre-crash prices, and and we just did that. That's another reason I was comparing to uh, 2019 because that was when we crossed the threshold of the 2005 sales peak. Wow. So it took us 14 years? Mm-hmm. Wow. To get the price back. So we've talked about density a lot lately, and I'm going to talk about it <laughs> again. I was on Free For All Friday. Great job. A week ago. Yeah. And here's here's what I said, and I want to say it again because it's important that people understand it. There are no arguments against a reasonable increase in density that hold up to either economic, social, environmental, or moral scrutiny. Moral. Yes, because anti-density arguments are inevitably based on bias, selfishness, and prejudice. Okay. And I'd welcome anybody on the show to debate that subject anytime. A report from Redfin said most Americans say that the nation needs to build more apartments, but less than ten percent or less than twenty percent think it's okay in their neighborhood. That's the not in my backyard, the NIMBYs. And what we're seeing is their neighborhood. Um is ever expanding, you know, it might be two miles away and, and, you know, that's not generally what you'd consider your neighborhood most of the time, but. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's an excellent point. There's a, a multifamily project that's still moving forward, but it was approved probably four years ago down on old Kings road, just North of state road 100. When you go by that little commercial plaza, that's still not built out. Yep. It's the next property on the right-hand side, the east side, 
of old kings. And uh, <clears throat> zoning request was put through, I think it was probably about four years ago, to rezone that to multifamily. And and it's still within the density. It's not a uh, an overly dense community because there's some wetland in there. But uh, the people from Hidden Lakes turned out in droves complaining about it. And if you look at Google Map, I think Hidden Lakes is almost two miles sure. north of that project. Well, and what's funny is if you look at – I've been diving into the comments, Toby. I've given, I've finally given in. I'm, I'm, on, I'm looking on the Facebook comments. And what seems to be generally people's concern um, – and you see people saying, well, I don't want you know three, four stories. Well, when you live two miles away, what is it? if they're four stories and you're not going to see them from the road that's next door anyway. Um, the, the big, the general sentiment seems to be people are opposed to rentals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think you're right. There's definitely a, a prejudice against rentals, but if you ask people who complain about rentals, have they ever rented? Most of them will say, well, yeah, of course they just don't want to live next to their 20 year old self. Hence, hence your case for the moral argument for mm-hmm. multifamily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, exactly. So, um, why why is density good? Why don't you start? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is it reduces environmental impacts um, greatly. Mm-hmm. When you can fit twelve units an acre versus two or three or four, you're impacting. Fewer acreage. That's very simple. You're cutting fewer trees. You're relocating fewer gopher tortoises and bunnies. Preserving more uplands and wetlands. Preserving more uplands and wetlands. Preserving agricultural land. Preserving, uh, probably creating conservation easements. So, but this is a uh, a topic that's going to go beyond our break. So we're going to break now and. Uh, We'll be right back, folks. Don't go away. All I can say is that this episode, a part of your show, started out with a fake news story <laughs> by the fire chief. Free for all Friday, where local newsmakers talk it out. People pretty much made up their minds about vaccines by now. We're crossing our fingers that everything holds up so we can give our folks some raises. Hi, I'm David Ayers. Join me and Brian McMillan every Friday morning following the news at 9 on WNCF and worldwide on the Flagler Radio mobile app. everybody. Thanks for staying with us. This is the second half of Real Estate Matters. Walker and I were just talking about density. We've talked about it before, too, and we will again because it's it's a very important pro, uh, topic, and it's, and it's one that is probably most misunderstood by, by general, the general public, I would say. I enjoy speaking about it because it's easy for me because I can be very dense. <laughs> You're, well, that's one area where density isn't uh, a, a plus when it comes to cognitive thinking. 
So uh, we, we talked about some of the reasons why density is good. Uh, one, one reason is that it affects housing affordability. Because if you have a 45-foot lot versus a 70 or 80-foot lot, which the typical Palm Coast infill lots are, then you've got to build only 45 feet of road in front of that house. 45 feet of utilities. And 45 feet of utilities, of sidewalks, of curbs and gutters, if, in fact, you have new construction invariably has all that. The infill lots in Palm Coast do not. Though you have um, less water usage because you have less lawn to water. Sure. Uh, We talked about more conservation land because typically what developers do, all the contiguous good highland uh, upland has been developed at least along the coast. There's still some large areas inland in Florida, but along the coast, which is where everybody wants to live, all of the multi-acre contiguous upland has been developed. All the easy stuff. All the easy stuff. So what's left is a developer is always faced with challenges of wetlands, and there are parcels that are being bought and developed today that are near the coast that are perhaps only 20 or 30% upland. So you've got to mitigate bridge over or work design around, around design design around. But then typically what happens is uh, what's not developed by clustering your development in smaller areas, smaller footprints, is turned over as a permanent conservation easement. So as, as Michael Cimento would say, the bugs and bunnies have a place to move to. That's right. And so when... That's become the practice when you're permitting a wetland, uh, when you're permitting a development site and there are wetlands there and you don't want to touch those wetlands, you'll say to the water management district, hey, we're going to put a conservation easement over these wetlands and basically perpetuity. And mm-hmm. therefore, they'll never be able to be impacted. And uh, another thing about Florida development now, new development is required to contain, now when, when you put down roads, sidewalks, driveways, and rooftops, you create what what they call in the industry impermeable surfaces. That's an area where the rain has to, doesn't soak into the ground directly, so it has to go someplace. And developers are required in Florida in a new development to contain all of that uh, increased runoff on the property, not, not let it flow to the neighbor's property or, in fact, in Palm Coast, to the city. And you can see where these systems, stormwater systems, retention ponds and lakes work very well is during hurricanes. When you drive around Palm Coast and you see the subdivisions that have been built in the last 10, 15, even 20 years um, and look at the ITT, the way ITT lots were developed, ITT designed those lots during hurricanes and big rain events to actually flood the streets were designed to flood mm-hmm. they're part of the system. in the in the scatter lot and and you know it's nothing against ITT but our systems are a lot more efficient and better for the environment today mm-hmm. but IT&T's challenge was that they were required by the Federal Trade Commission whoever the governing body was 
at the time to install all of their infrastructure up front. So there are a lot yeah. of costs to figure out how to creatively manage mm-hmm. in that scenario. And and, and they found a, a relatively inexpensive way to design and construct a stormwater management system. But there's there's a downs there are more more than one downside to it. Uh, one is that uh, you don't have curbs and gutters, which makes uh, perhaps less appealing. Uh, no sidewalks because you can't put a sidewalk in a swale. But these great canal systems that they dug mm-hmm. as well at Iroquois and, and St. Joe's and control the water level on those canals and control. <laughs> what a lot of people don't realize is that the control level of those canals a lot of times determines how much water is in your swale in your front yard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah well, I, I grew up uh, living along the shores of Lake Ontario and the water level at the shoreline was at the mercy of the St. Lawrence River uh, canal system. So if you had like So a, they controlled the outflow from all, really what amounts to all five Great Lakes through the St. Lawrence River. So if and somebody had a bad control. day, he could, he could turn a dial on. <laughs> and flood people, for sure. Uh, some other arguments for, for density. Um, you know, we talked about using less water, cutting fewer trees, displacing fewer animals, um, keeping construction infrastructure costs down, the, the build portion, but then the maintenance portion too. You, you not only have to build shorter roads to service the same number of people, but then uh, the maintenance and perpetuity is going to cost less. And it's a, well... Boon to the taxpayer, or mm-hmm. rather to the tax collector, when you've got 200 or so, 180 units on 10 acres, not even maybe eight acres. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny when we have Jay come on and talk, it, it, and he's never said this, so I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but it seems to me like multifamily apartments are kind of the missing middle in terms of how we bridge the gap. His concern is and has always been we're too heavy on the single-family residential side supporting our tax base and not enough on the commercial side, whereas multifamily sort of squeezes in between those two. Well, the the original plan by IT&T and, and Levitt, and a lot of people know that ITT was the developer, and they talk about ITT planted lots, the original ITT design. The design really came from Levitt, and Levitt was the one that built Levittown on Long Island. And so that's why, I mean, you'll see some real comparisons, uh, similarities between Levittown and, and Palm Coast. I mean, we're not laid out in a, like, streets and avenue grid system like uh, the older northern towns are. We have, we're a cul-de-sac community, but that creates, that precludes uh, public transportation any reasonable because you, you know, you're not going to get a bus system that's going to go all the way back into the P section. It's going to go up and down Beltaire, and if uh, you go to the back of the P section, live there, it's a, it's a mile and a half walk out to Beltaire to catch a bus. So that's that's detrimental. Uh, we, you know, kind of wish that that weren't true, but it is. Uh, you know, the other the other fact is that uh, the we talked about it, the swale system precludes sidewalks. 
Um, that's why probably we have overhead utilities rather than underground. So it's going to be an interesting challenge, I think, uh, as Palm Coast grows beyond its present boundaries to incorporate some of these changes, tweaks. Palm Coast is laid out nicely. It's a great place. I'm, I'm not moving. This is my final final resting place. But, you know, in, in a lot of the public... Um, well, I just got flagged. We're running out of time, so I won't start this. Uh, but next week... What, what you were going to say sounded like it might have been juicy, and Mark yeah. was waving his signs. So. Yeah. Uh, but I, I've heard a lot of comparisons recently at public comments, uh, city council and, and planning board meetings, comparing Palm Coast to Nakati, which is a, uh, currently one of the most successful master plan communities in the country and largest and fastest growing. So it's a great little community in northern St. John's County. And and basically what the public comments are is why can't we be like them? And uh, I've done a little homework, and next week I promise we'll go over the Nakati to Palm Coast comparison, and, and it's it's very enlightening. I've seen this data that Toby put together. It will knock your socks off. So tune in next week. Sure thing. And uh, if you want to challenge me on a debate about uh, density, give me a call at 386-931-7124. I'm Toby Tobin, and I approve this show. 